Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Sutra Studies 2. Two new people, yeah. Sutra Studies Sunday. Uh, we meet every Sunday and we talk about Buddhist sutras. Sometimes we talk about the same sutra for a few Sundays in a row. Other times I just introduce a sutra. Tonight's one going to be one of those nights where I'm just going to introduce a sutra and read a little bit from it. The sutra we're looking at tonight is called the Samdinir Mochana Sutra. The translation of Samdinir Mochana is revealing the secret meaning or exposing the underlying meaning. The, the word Samdinir Mochana has these notions of that there's some sort of hidden, secret, implicit teaching to all of the Buddha's Dharma, to all of the teachings. And this is the sutra that unlocks it, because I've also read Unlocking the Secret Teaching. Um, so this is the sutra that reveals this secret teaching. That's it. That, that's the idea. Um, I have up here three English translations of the Samdinir Mochana Sutra. This big one called The Wisdom of the Buddha by John Powers. John Powers. I think it's John Powers. Let me just make sure. By John Powers, translated by John Powers. This is translated, you'll see, from the Tibetan. So this is from the Tibetan. This is, and this is, he calls, Wisdom of the Buddha. But that's not a translation of Semdinir Mochana. That's just like, this is the Wisdom of the Buddha, this here. Um, and he calls it just the Semdinir Mochana. Then this is a, the most recent English translation and my favorite. He describes it, who is he? Keen, Keen I believe is his last name. John Keenan, K-E-E-N-A-N. And he translates it as the scripture or the sutra on the explication of the underlying meaning. So explaining the secret or underlining meaning. Okay. And then finally, this sort of uh, uh, Thomas Cleary, it's called Buddhist Yoga, is what he calls his book. Um, this is probably, I would say, the funnest version, but not the truest to like the original in terms of translation. Uh, John Cleary, uh, Thomas Cleary, in a lot of his translations of Buddhist texts, takes a lot of liberties in using what I would call New Age language, um, which adds a certain flavor. That's nice, but if you're a student of Dharma, a stu student of Buddhism, and, and you want to know about Vijnanas, Lakshana, these like real Dharma ideas that you might already be familiar with, if you read the Keenan translation, he will, as much as possible, preserve those ideas of Vijnana, what have you. <coughs> you will not find those Sanskrit words. You will find more colorful ideas of you know, uh, luminous consciousness and ideas like that. So if you, again, if you know what's being described, like if you have already read the Samdinir Mochana Sutra, and then you read this one, it has its merits. It has great merit. But if this is your only one, you're going to be lost. 
you will not understand Buddhist yoga. So quickly about that term yoga, question, idea? No? Uh, quickly a term about this uh, Buddhist yoga. Another misleading title. So many, this book is in so many used bookstores because it's not about what you would think yoga is. And I am sure the reason why I see this in so many used bookstores is because so many people buy it and they're like, ooh, finally, Buddhist yoga. And they're like, I don't see any yoga at all. There's no downward dog, there's no anything. And so off to the used bookstore. So, which is good for you because it's usually very cheap. So. Okay, the reason why he calls it Buddhist yoga though is because Thomas Cleary knows that this Samdhinya Mochana Sutra is the foundation of what is called Yoga Chara Buddhism, AKA also known as the Mind Only School, also known as Vijnana Vada. So if you remember, Vada is the way of or the path of. So Theravada is the way of the Theras or the elders. And there's all kinds of other vadas, other ways or paths. This is the path of Vijnana, which we're going to talk all night about. In China, the school is called the Faxiang school, which is, this is an interesting idea to itself, which is difficult to translate. If we have time, I will. And then finally, it's also called the Sita or Chitta Matra school, which is a translation for mind only. Chitta Matra, mind only. Just mind. That's it. So some of you may have already heard of Yogacara or mind-only Buddhism. If you haven't, that's what I'm here to describe tonight, is explain kind of what this is and where it fits into the larger scope of Buddhism. There are sort of three main mind-only sutras. The Samdhinya Mochana is the pinnacle, the top. It is the revealing the secret meaning. It is the most like direct of all the other sutras. Very quickly though, the Lankavatara Sutra here and the Sharangama Sutra here. Uh, D.T. Suzuki's pretty good translation of the Lankavatara Sutra. There is a couple others in English. Sharangama, this is a pretty old one by a guy named Charles Look. I'm pretty sure this is the one Jack Kerouac was reading, but there's also one in the Goddard Bible, if you are familiar with the Dwight Goddard. Buddhist Bible. There is a translation of the Shandama in there. All three of these sutras, Sabdhinya Mochana, Lankavatara, Shurangama, are all dealing with the same idea, which is this consciousness only or mind only school of Buddhism. It's sort of a, there's a way in which, like all of the Buddhisms that we talk about, there's a way in which all Buddhism is mind only. Even Theravada, once you really get down to the Abhidharma, nitty-gritty of it, it's more or less mind-only. They don't really go so far as to say that, but again, abidharmically, if you get into it, it's mind-only. But then this idea of all of reality, all of phenomena, being nothing more than chitta, nothing more than mind, that idea of mind-onlyness comes to its full fruition in this Yogacara school, espoused most clearly in these three sutras. There are other Yogacara mind-only sutras, but these three are the, the tip of the top. The Yogacara school is said to have begun in, not really India actually, but in Gandhara, that region of Central Asia that is now Afghanistan. There was a monk from Gandhara 
today Afghanistan, named Asanga. He died around 370. <coughs> Asanga was a Buddhist monk, supposedly a Ther- kind of Theravadan Mahayanan. There's a whole school in which he was a member of that was like, you would basically more or less think he was a Theravadan in that way, kind of old school Buddhist. But he became devoted to and made offerings and vows to uh, Maitreya. Who is that Buddha, the future Buddha? This is Maitreya. So not Shakyamuni, the old Buddha, but Asanga, sometime in the fourth century, during his latter part of his life, he became devoted to this Bodhisattva Maitreya, the future Buddha, and claims to have ascended a ladder of light, sort of. <laughs> Familiar theme. A ladder of light and gone up to the Tushita heaven where Maitreya is and received teachings directly from Maitreya on this mind-only school. He wrote a number of things, a sangha. I have here one book that's called On Knowing Reality, and it's one of a sangha's major mind-only writings, treatises. Pass that around. So Asanga goes up to the Tushita heaven, meets Maitreya, receives these teachings, writes some poems. They become the foundation of a Yogacara school. He goes back to his brother, Vasubandhu. We don't know if they were like blood brothers or like they were both monks, so we're brothers. It's not really entirely sure what kind of brothers they were. Maybe they were just bros. I don't know. But Asanga went back to his bro, Vasubandhu, who was a staunch Theravadan. He was all about Theravadan teachings, and Asanga basically schools him on the mind-only school, and, and in, a, in a famous moment of Buddhism, converts Vasubandhu to this Mahayana mind-only school, right? giving up his Theravada ways. Any questions, ideas about any of that so far before we dive in to the mind-only? No. Uh, so these are the three most important sutras of the school, but there are others. And also, do they read sutras? Well, first of all, are there still people practicing? Oh, school? good. And then yeah. also, what other sutras did they read? Or did they read? Or was everything Theravada plus these three? Or? On that note, I will tell you that last week, I spoke about the giant Avatamsaka Sutra. The Avatamsaka Sutra, a school unto itself early on in Buddhism, the Avatamsaka speaks of this idea of the mind only. It speaks of the idea of what are called seeds in the storehouse consciousness. It speaks of these ideas. And if we have time later on, I'm going to tell you the story of a Chinese monk Uh, whose life and his teachings and other things are in these volumes. But there was a Chinese monk named uh, Xuanzang. And Xuanzang started this Fashian school because he was reading the Avatamsaka Sutra in China, came across these parts of it that were talking about it's all the mind, but it's just sort of like, oh yeah, by the way, it's all the mind. And he was like, wait, what are these parts about it saying that this is all mind created? What are the, what's this all about? So he actually, Xuanzang, takes a 16-year pilgrimage to India 
and lives in India for, he's gone from China for 16 years total, and he studies the Yogacara of Asanga Vasubandhu, brings back, Vasubandhu and Asanga's work brings back the Yogacara school and founds the Fashyak school. But it's all coming originally out of the Avatamsaka. So another sutra, the Avatamsaka, is a major mind-only sutra. And then you get these sutras, which, of course, you know, are all supposedly Buddha Vaka. They're all supposedly the, the, the words of the Buddha. Historically, though, I don't know, maybe these came later, probably. You should know that. Um, and in terms of this still being a practice school, not so much. Not so much at all. But what you need to know, though, is, is that all of Vajrayana, all of Tibetan Buddhism is mind only. It's all on a foundation of Yogacara Buddhism. And it's like from Yogacara you get Tibetan Vajrayana. And there's no way to conceive of or understand Vajrayana Buddhism without understanding this. So, so but previous to Asanga, there was just hints of mind only. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And like I said, even in the Pali canon, you will find little references to the idea of it. So it's even present in the earliest stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's... Oh, by the way, I also have two things that Vasubandhu wrote here that I'll pass around. One is his famous treatise or writings on karma. He's one of the few Buddhists to actually really get into the notion of karma. In general, Buddhism doesn't really talk a lot about karma, or at least the dynamics of karma, but this is actually a whole treatise on the dynamics of karma, but from a mind-only point of view, interesting, pass that right around, and he also, Vasubandhu, also wrote uh, this famous kind of poem, and this is a translation and study of that famous poem, Bada-boom. just make sure you get all that around, if I, know, don't, if I fail to mention it, these are just a bunch of nice books about Yogacara Buddhism, so... I'll just leave these up here, so if anybody's really hot about this, you might want to read this. Okay. Um, yeah. um, this question is more of like a check-in for me. So you're saying a lot of words that are foreign to me, and I just want to check in, is that okay? Should I be asking for clarification on certain things so that I... You can them? always... This is a super open class if we didn't mention it to the folks who knew. This is like super open. So if you want to know something or whatever, you, sh- you shoot it out. But my style of teaching is a little shotgun that way where I'm putting a lot out there. And if you, I don't feel like any of it's totally vital. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, on to – let me – I'm going to read the opening bit of the Samdini Mochana Sutra so I feel – that we've done something tonight, you know? <laughs> and, then, um, and then I want to get, well, basically, yeah, then we'll talk mind only. Like, yeah. Uh, but here's this beautiful sutra, um, the Samdinir Mochana. Thus have I heard, at one time, the world honored one was dwelling in an immeasurable abode adorned with the seven gems that shone brilliantly and emitted a great light illuminating all the immeasurable world realms. Its limitless regions were brilliantly adorned and well arranged. They had no boundaries. 
Their quantity was beyond reckoning, and they surpassed anything found in the triple world. Having been brought forth from good roots, that abode transcended this world. It was characterized by a pure conscious construction of perfect mastery. It was the domain of Tathagatas, like clouds, great bodhisattvas gathered together there. An immeasurable number of gods, nagas, yakshas, gandharavas, asuras, garudas, kinaras, maharagas, humans, non-humans, and similar beings were in attendance. There, the great taste of the doctrine sustained their delight and happiness and brought about all benefit for sentient beings. It had destroyed the oppressive, defiled inclinations of passion, and it was far removed from all inamicable forces. Surpassing all adornments was the adorned abode of the Tathagata. Its paths were the cultivation of great recollection and wisdom. Its vehicles were great quietude and vision. Its entry doors were the great liberations of emptiness, imagelessness, and desirelessness. It was ornamented with a multitude of good qualities. It was established by the multitude of the great jeweled flower king. In that great palace, the world-honored ones, entirely purified understanding did not appear as dual. He entered into an unmarked doctrine. He dwelled in the Buddha abode, realized the equality of all Buddhas, and reached the state of no obstacles. The irreversible teaching of the doctrine he propounded was unhindered. That which he established was inconceivable. Traversing the three times in the reality of equality, his bodies issued forth to all world realms. His wisdom had no uncertainty in regard to anything. He had perfected his great enlightenment in all practices. His wisdom had no doubt in regard to anything whatsoever. All the bodies he manifested could not be differentiated. His wisdom, which was well sought after by all bodhisattvas, had attained that victorious far shore of a Buddha's non-dual abode. That unified wisdom of the Tathagata's liberation was indeed ultimate. He had realized the equality of all Buddha lands. He reached to the reality realm. He exhausted space and would never come to an end. He was accompanied by an immeasurable multitude of great voice hearers, all of whom were docile sons of the Buddha. Their thinking was well liberated. Their understanding was well liberated. Their discipline was well purified, and they had set their aims upon joy and doctrine. They had heard much and retained and accumulated what they had heard. They thought good thoughts, spoke good words, and did good deeds. Their wisdom, their wisdom was swift, quick, incisive, salvific, penetrating, great, expansive, unequaled. Having perfected that wisdom gem, they were endowed with the three knowledges of remembering former lives, of the divine eye, and of the destruction of the outflows. They had attained the happiness of the highest state in the present world. They dwelled in the field of pure merit. Their deportment was tranquil and in no way imperfect. The perfection of their great patience and gentleness was without decrease, already good, they revered and practiced the holy teachings of the Tathagatas. Also present were an immeasurable number of great bodhisattvas assembled from various Buddha lands, 
all dwelled, all dwelling in the great vehicle, the Mahayana, and roaming in the doctrine of that great vehicle. Their minds maintained equality in regard to all sentient beings. They were free from discriminating time from the end of time. They had surpassed, suppressed all inimicable forces. They were far removed from thinking of all the voice hearers and solitary enlightened Buddhas. They were sustained by the joy and happiness of that great expansive taste of the doctrine. They had risen above the five dreads and had assuredly entered the state of a non-returner. Appearing before them, they mitigated the oppressive lands that torment sentient beings. And the principal bodhisattvas present were the bodhisattva revealing the underlying meaning, a bunch of bodhisattvas with big giant Sanskrit names that I'm not going to butcher, as well as Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, Bodhisattva Maitreya, and Bodhisattva Manjushri. So that's the opening, and as I've told you many, many times with sutras, the opening chapter tells you all there is to know about the sutra. That it is indeed sort of an, in Mahayana sutras, that opening chapter tends to be a full encapsulation of the whole sutra. A lot of ideas going on in in there, but I just wanted to give you a, a hint of the flavor of this sutra. It's pretty wild, it's dense, and there's a few sort of like fundamental Yogacara ideas that are presented in this sutra that I want to share with everybody. Yeah? So again, I'm not going to read it line by line because it is a little dense, and it would basically like each line, we would spend 20 minutes of me like dissecting the line and dissecting the line, and then it would be like, okay, we got the line, let's move to the next line. And we could do it that way, but I would rather just sort of drop on you the, the general philosophy of Yogacara Buddhism because it's fascinating. So I'm going to erase a little bit here. I'll keep that up there. Okay, so this whole school of thought, this Yogacara or mind only, <coughs> it's all based on this idea of the Vijnana. It's called the, the Vada or the, the way or the path of Vijnana, Vijnana Vada. It's called that because of this tremendous uh, emphasis and focus on this idea of vijnana, consciousness. And there is indeed, tonight I want to share with you this difference between chitta, mind, and vijnana. In Buddhism, these are two radically different things, and we're going to disambiguate them tonight. We, Western folks, English-speaking Western folks, are sort of limited in our language by just having these certain vague notions of consciousness and that thing we call ma. You know, it's like we have these words, but when you really start putting those words, looking at those words, it's like, what are we, what are we talking about with mind and consciousness? Buddhism, on the other hand, has a very highly developed idea of what they mean and what they're referring to when they say vijnana versus chitta. So for the first bit of tonight, we're just going to be focusing on this idea of vijnana. What is it? Well, what we're going to be talking about is... Eight 
old types or levels or I don't know, but eight Vijnanas. We're gonna be talking about eight Vijnanas tonight. Uh, eight consciousnesses. But again, what are the relationships between these eight? We'll see. We'll see. Okay, so the first thing we're going to deal with is the traditional, classic, six senses, according to Buddhism. So Buddhism's a little unique in terms of its psychology, because rather than our, the Western scientific view, which sees the, the, the sentient agent, the individual, as having five exploratory <laughs> sense organs to explore its environment. We have eyes to see and ears to hear and noses to smell and tongues to taste and bodies to feel. That's us. In Western scientific mind, that is our sensory or those are our sensory organs. Buddhism's a little unique in that it throws the brain in there as a sense organ just like these other five sense organs. You have eyeballs, right? Um, and by the way, each of these, a eyeball, this thing in here, an ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the brain are all, um, well, this is going to get a little inside out until we're through the looking glass there. But the idea is that all six of these are made of rupa, flesh, matter, stuff. They're made of the four great elements. And traditionally in Buddhism, rupa, whatever it is, is a combination of the four great elements, earth, fire, water, and air, right? And the idea is that indeed my eyeball is made of flesh. My ear is made of flesh. My nose is made of flesh, tongue, body, and brain. So these are our six exploratory organs for Buddhism, and each of these has a corresponding, uh, so these are the sense organ, and then this is the sense object. So the idea is, is that the fleshy eye, our eyeballs can't hear stuff, right? Our eyeballs do not have a relationship to sounds. Our eyeballs have a relationship to form and shape. That's what eyeballs do is they sense basically light and shadow and form and shape. And from light and shadow and form and shape determine three dimensions and through three dimensional determination of form and shape Decide. Oh, that's the that that looks a lot like a table and four books and a microphone and a clock. Like that's the the way the eye works, form and shape. And the idea is, is that I have my sense organ 
And as it goes over here and I open my eyes, bam, it comes into contact with the form and the shape. Boom, there's contact. In much the same way that as the sound of my voice is coming across or whatever, that sound comes into contact with the ear or a little, a little uh, flower particle or a little you know, piece of whatever that has a smell lands on that little delicate palate inside my nose and I come into contact, literally come into contact with the flower particles that make me smell whatever it is I'm smelling. Of course, when the little salty particles land on my tongue, there's contact. And of course, when my fleshy hand comes into contact, there's feeling or tactility. Everybody follow me on this? We're sensory organs made of flesh coming into contact with five, six, ultimately, uh, sensory objects. Everybody follow that? When this, this is how it works according to Buddhism, is that when the eyeball comes into contact with forms or when the ear comes into contact with sounds, there emerges, so this is really like I plus form or I plus sounds. So I plus forms, there arises something called a kakshas vijnana, I vijnana, I consciousness. I vijnana. So these vijnanas that we're about to talk about, consciousness, the reason why it's not mind and it's not what you might think of as consciousness is because we all think of consciousness e e egoically or egotistically in that sense of as a uh, manifestation of our ego. So consciousness is thinking. Vijnana is more rudimentary than thinking, than thought and consciousness. Because what Buddhism is saying is, is that when my eye bing, comes into contact with form, the merger or the meeting or the clash of the form with my eye, you can, I kind of imagine them as like rubbing together through the contact, sparsha, it's called that contact, and that rubbing creates this vijnana, like a consciousness field in my eyeball. Like imagine like a magnetic field of awareness in my eye. That is the result, so now think dependent origination, is the result of the coming into contact of the two. So there's this fleshy eyeball floating in space here, two of them in fact, and the form comes and when they contact, in the eyes there arises an awareness of form. Oh look, an awareness of some, I don't even have my glasses on, so this is really easy. It's just like kind of black and brown and yellow, like just vague forms and shapes. But that awareness, awareness, vijnana, of that is emerging through the, this clashing of fleshy eye and form. Or when there is a sound that comes floating through and hits the ear, there emerges an ear consciousness, an ear awareness. Everybody follow me on this? So... Yep. Yeah, uh, so there's a couple different things I think you might need, and I want to figure out which one it is. Sweet. Um, so, like, if I look at that and I say there's a microphone, there's, like a, there's actually, like, a lot of steps in between seeing the colored smudges and, like, the word microphone. Right? Yes. 
and you're saying that the Vijnana is like only like the first one. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and actually what I, where I'm going with this will even help okay. more to clarify what we're talking about. So yes, so eyeballs come into contact with form or shape. There emerges this, eye, this consciousness. The idea being that if I, you know, sorry for the, the gory graphic, but if I were to like tear out my eyeballs and so there was no more contact, indeed there would be no more eye knowledge. Everybody follow me on that? Like it's the connection of the two that is emerging this. Nora? Yeah, I think that's the question. Like emerging, it's like almost it was there before. And I feel like, isn't it, we have form because we have eyes and we have sound because we have ears? You're getting a little ahead of the game uh, in terms of your, you're getting to my conclusion before I'm there. So sweet, you're, you're on. But, but in terms of this, this idea, just for now, just for now, like I think of it as like a magnetic field where you, when you have two magnets and when one's over here and one's over here, nothing. But when you start to bring them closer together, you have uh, generate a magnetic field that could light a light a little light bulb, like all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And as soon as you move those magnets apart, no more little light bulb. Oh, like that. And so it's the same way with all of these sensory organs that it takes both the sensory object and the sensory organ coming in contact for this vijnana to emerge. And we're gonna. I want to talk in more detail about what is going on with this vijnana, this eye consciousness. But let's walk through all of these first, and then we'll do that. So eyes only know about forms and shapes, whereas ears are sounds, nose and sense, tongues and taste. The body, of course, is this. Is like ooh, no is. Cre so it's only when this is coming to contact with this that there is awareness, a body vijnana. But of course, I am always having body vijnana because I am always in contact with the world. I'm always have a temperature, a feeling, and like whatever it is. So when I say this funny thing of like, oh, here comes my eyeball, bam, like the idea is no, we're actually always in contact with the world through our sensory organs that way. So we're in contact through vision, sound, sense, taste, and tactiles. And then finally, what happens is, is this. I'm erasing it all. I know, I know, but I'm starting all over. For good reason. So what I want you to think of is you can look at it like this. Um, so this is going to be a brain. Atmospheric brain, kind of, and then we have our eyeball and our ear and our nose and we have a tongue. <laughs> this is my tongue. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I don't know about that, but and then finally some sort of body, right? The whole body. Okay, so this is our ear sensory organ, nose sensory organ, eyeball sensory organ. And, and then we have our bowl <laughs> out here. All right, so that, where's our bowl? Here's our bowl. 
and that bowl is going to be this bowl, right? So the idea is, is that the form or shape, if you will, of the bowl comes into contact with the eye. And what happens, like I just said, when form and eyeballs get together, there emerges in the eyeball itself, not the brain. No, in the actual eyeball, there emerges this vijnana, a consciousness. And what you should know about this vijnana eye, your eyeball, and this is going to be helpful if you've been coming and you know your Buddhism. So this eyeball here is made of rupa, I already said that, it's made of flesh. And I have been saying all night that it is a sensory organ. So it is in the business of sensing things, right? So it is also a fleshy thing full of sensations that is in the business of perception, has its own conditioning, and of course we are talking about how it is a vijnana. So if you know your dharma or you know your Buddhism, you may recognize that these are the five skandhas. These are the five elements that the Buddha came along and said, surprise, no self, no soul, no e none of that. That's all an illusion. What this is is actually the momentary amalgamation of five skandhas, form, sensations, perceptions, volition, or what I call conditioning, and consciousness, right? They if you know your skandhas, then you recognize the skandhas. But what I'm telling you is, is that all the skandhas are in just the eyeball. The eyeball itself is made of flesh, is in the business of sensing, and is in the business of samya. This is samya. This is the, the samskara called samya, which is usually like what form, sensation, yeah, is usually translated as perception. But I've described Samya as this, um, it's sort of like this cutting up of a scene into, ah, bowl, book, 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 table, microphone, clock. That type of Samya, which is a, what I call associative thought patterns. The idea being that I, I know what this is actually because of these other things. All these other things are informing what I think that is. What the idea is is that how does the eyeball know what it's looking at? It, too, has a, a associative thought thing, a perception going on, where it, the eyeball, is discriminating. And what I want to explain in terms of that is think of, you know, we know that these eyeballs of ours can only perceive certain bandwidths of light. Other bandwidths, big, big red waves, tiny, tiny little violet waves, they can't go in. That is the, not, we're not at conditioning yet, but that is the perceptive limit of eyeballs, right? So the eyeball itself is of flesh, having sensations that are kind of limiting in terms of what it can make sense out of. And then the eyeball itself has been seeing things <laughs> its whole existence and has built up um, instinctual reactions to things, samskara. The eyeball itself has samskara, that conditioning, based on all of the other things that it has thought it has seen, 
right, that it has imagined it has seen. Everybody follow me on this? Because what happens is, is this. The form hits the eyeball, generates a vijnana, and then the eyeball, through because it's made of flesh, has a sensation, compares it to other things. If this were a sound, I would be comparing it to all other sounds to determine what this one sound is, filtering it through all my past conditioning of sounds or sights. And through this whole process, there emerges a idea of what I'm seeing, not an actual uh, light vision of it. Through this filter, I've developed this idea that it's a table of a bowl and books and all of that. You may follow me? Vijnanas, consciousness, Vijnana, is in the business of sort of producing dharmas. Little d dharmas, ideas, concepts. Nama Rupa, name and form, as one idea. So this is a dharma, an idea, or a concept of a bull. Do I follow me this? Because my eyeball cannot see all the light bouncing, like I said, it cannot see all the light bouncing off this bull. So using the limited, tiny limited bandwidth that it has available, and then using all the information around it, and then filtering through all my past beliefs and everything everybody's ever told me about things and bowls and all of that. <laughs> through all of that, there emerges, ah, yeah, that brass, that little brass bowl. But it's, again, it's an idea. And, of course, the ear is going, oh, sounds like a bowl to me. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a bowl. So then, the bowl, the sound, Where's my ear? So the, the bowl, right? The bowl sound comes here. Just I just showed you it happened. Hits my ear, and then, oh, yeah. Sure enough, it's a bowl. I know what those sound like. <laughs> yeah, bowls sound, bowls have sounds. That's exactly what bowls do. <laughs> Anyways, so this is a little dharma, a little concept of bowl based on sound a little concept of bowl based on sight. You know, I could do, oh, yeah, smooth. Yeah, bowls are smooth, definitely. So, boom, because of my tactile, tactile experience, I have the dharma that it feels like a bowl. I could go taste it, right? I could go lick it, and I could be like, oh, yeah, that has a very bland metallic taste, just <laughs> like bowls are supposed to have, right? <laughs> and then, you know... Yep, sure smells <coughs> like a bull. <laughs> All right, everybody got this? What's going on? Matt? Um, two questions. One, for observation. I was cooking the other day at home, and I have a, a mixing bowl. And I hit it with like the, the bottle of olive oil, and it went, oh, and it was a beautiful sound. I was like, oh, that's a beautiful sound. I'm going to use that next time we have our meeting at my house, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it, 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 brought, it brought all the bowl elements of this bowl into my mind, right? And it was really fun. 
And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, it, yeah, the idea that the, uh, the reality, or whatever reality is, but the idea was just totally morphed. Well, because my ear apparently doesn't have very good conditioning or something, and thought it was a, a you know, a meditation tool. But there's that. And, and another question, but the question is, is um, and not to argue with any of this stuff, that's not where I'm going, yep. but as we have progressed as a science people, um, we now believe that like sight is actually back here in my brain, the eyes are perceiving things, and it's, it's manifesting here. Is there any way, or is there anyone looking at Buddhism and like, kind of like saying, we can update this, we have more information, but we can bring all this tool to that. The only thing that I can tell you is that I have had a, I have been in the audience with a few folks that are coming from psychology, that world, and the things that they talked about, I forget, this was a number of years ago and I forget the exact details, but after their talks, I remember coming up to them and explaining or, and talking about this Buddhist idea of samya because it was exactly what the talks were about. And it was about this idea of that perception, and visual perception in particular, is more, um, this might be an outdated idea, but is anybody familiar with the really old idea of whole language? Where the idea of instead of learning the alphabet and learning to spell out words, S-T-A-R-T, start, start. Instead of learning language that way, like most of us did, there was a theory for a while of whole language, where you would just see that word "strt" as a as a like a Chinese symbol almost, just whole language. So not breaking it into letters, but just learning it as if they were shapes. This looks like the you know the shape start. It's a whole language idea. They follow me on that idea. So what? The psychologists were explaining, and then I came up and said, hey, you know, the Buddhists were talking about this 2,000 years ago, and they called it samya, was a, a whole language view of, of perception, where it wasn't like these are letters, and then the letters give, oh, okay, it's actually that we do see reality or, or scenes like in total as one, and that the mind kind of like you were, you were describing, but then the, it's the mind later on, like I've been saying, the Buddhist way, the mind later on goes in and chops up that whole image into what it imagines as being parts. And so these psychologists were interested in this word samya and this idea that Buddhists had been thinking about perception for a long time as whole, whole language, that kind of whole vision. So kind of related. But I love your, your salad bowl, though. <laughs> Because that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of these, like, you know, I make this joke, like, yeah, of course bowls sound nice. But wait, I thought bowls have my cereal. Like, that's not a, that's not a defining characteristic of a bowl, <laughs> that it sounds good. A defining characteristic of a bowl is that it, it holds stuff well. And if I have a really flat bowl and stuff keeps falling out, it's not a very good bowl, right? But that it sounds good? How did, where did I get that idea? Well, you have a samya, you have a, or some conditioning there. Okay, so here we go. You see now how each of the sense organs, the five, are operating with their own vijnana, made of rupa, all of that, and through their limitations ultimately, through the limitations of vision, sound, and discriminations, past experiences, da-da-da-da-da, 
the mind or the little Vijnana here is coming up with these ideas that are based on past experiences, discrimination, all of that. And then, if you remember, um, these little bubble ones are dharmas. What happens is, is that then the tongue, Vijnana, sends this dharma idea to the brain. And the ear sends its dharma idea to the brain and the nose. And the nose is like, yeah, I didn't smell anything. And the tongue is like, yeah, I didn't, it's tasted metallic. And the ear is like, sounded good. And the body's like, sure was smooth. And the eyes were like, sure was round. And so it just as eyeballs sense form and ears sense sound, our brains, according to Buddhism, sense dharmas. That is the sensory object of our brain, our dharmas, ideas, or concepts. And so what happens is, is that these little idea dharmas of bowls get sent to the central processing unit of the brain, and when the brain comes into contact with dharmas, there emerges a brain. Vijnana, this is the sixth consciousness. So these are the five, so the traditional five consciousnesses. This is the sixth consciousness, the central processing unit that takes all the dharmas of the other Vijnanas and creates a central dharma, a central idea. But here's what I want you to really remember, is that these ideas are not the bowl. They are the distorted, limited, conditioned, discriminated, all of that, then sent to the brain that is made of flesh, has its own sensations, its own samya, its own past conditioning. So the brain takes those dharmas and runs it through a filter of its past experiences and all of that. <clears throat> and then the brain, the sixth consciousness, comes up with this unified notion of yeah, a bowl that sounds this way, looks this way, feels this way, smells that way, tastes that way. Everybody following me on the sixth consciousness because we're not done yet. Unified bowl theory. Say again? Unified bowl theory. Unified bowl theory, yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. So, I'm going to get rid of this one. I need some space. I need some space. Okay. Okay, so now, some of you have probably heard or seen this, but if you haven't, I want to share it with you. So, this is traditionally the eye is the first consciousness, Ear, nose, tongue, body. And then the sixth consciousness is the brain, central processing unit, creating this idea. And I'm going to share with you this sort of analogy or metaphor, and you can kind of think about it. So the idea is I have these sensory organs that are sending the little dharmas of what they're gathering to the central processing unit that's producing this one unified concept, dharma, of what it thinks it's seen, right? So that's the sixth consciousness, but we do have this 
seventh consciousness. Uh, by the way, this is called the manas vijnana. <clears throat> and that's the sixth consciousness. There's a mano vijnana, which is the seventh consciousness, and that's what I'm about to talk about right now. What basically the idea of Buddhism is that oh there is, so you can imagine, if you will, that I have a nice round mirror right here, nice round mirror, very reflective, perfectly reflective, whatever I show it to, boom, you guys see all yourself boom there's the bowl, everything right so <clears throat> Just to start, I want you to, to imagine, if you will, that I have something special back here. And you can't see it, right? But it's, it's really cool, right? <laughs> and if I were to take my mirror, right, and I were to put it, angle it just right, you'd be able to see the secret surprise, right? In the mirror, right? Now, you can't see what I really have here, but you can see the mirror reflection of what I have, right? Keep that in mind. Because what I'm going to, the analogy is, is that you imagine, if you will, a bisection of your brain and replace that bisection of your brain with that mirror, right? So now the surface of your mind is like this mirror, yeah? And rather than, this is going to be helpful, but now, rather than seeing this visionic transfer, this is a visionic transfer, right? Where the, the visionana of the ear shoots its uh, dharma bowl over to the brain. This visionic transfer, think of it as a reflection. Meaning my ears are sort of like reflecting the sound. And then the central processing unit of my brain is actually looking at a reflection of the sound. Or a reflection of the image. Or a reflection of how it feels. Not the actual thing, but the, the reflection of it. Can you follow me on that? So the visiononic transfer is more like a mirror reflection. Not some electric signal or I don't know what everybody had in mind when I drew my little zigzag. But think of it more like a reflection. And so then now think of it like this, as my sensory organs as these mirrors that are pointed at certain realities of sound and this and that, and then sending that reflection to this mirror-like mind central processing unit. You follow me? The seventh consciousness is like looking down on the sixth, and it's like, oh, look, there's the bowl, there's the books, there's the class, there's all the chairs. And this sixth consciousness mirror, of course, is like I'm getting a reflection, but it's being reflected from the organs. Everybody see him? I'm up on a chair, folks. Let me... <laughs> <laughs> you see that idea? So it's a reflection being reflected, and then this seventh consciousness, this manovijnana, uh, this seventh consciousness is, it's, in Buddhism, it starts to look like an ego or a self or a sense of self. 
But please keep in mind that it, like everything else, is dynamic, always changing, never the same, and therefore never there to grasp. It is a process or a flow, not a thing in that way. But the idea is, is that this, um, when eyeballs hit the form, there emerges the vijnana. When the dharma is being produced by that, hit the brain, there emerges this seventh consciousness that is looking down on the information being provided to it by the sixth consciousness, which is really just processing the information from the five. The, the visualization that in your thinking, you're actually looking down on a reflection, not out at the world. You consciously, or at least I consciously feel like I, through my eyeballs, am looking out at the world. That, that these are uh, uh, windows. I'm saying they're mirrors. If you see what I'm saying, like I'm just looking at a reflection. I'm not looking out at the world. I'm actually looking down at a reflection of reality that is in turn a reflection of reality. The Buddhist idea is a kind of either a warning or a questioning of what happens when those mirrors are dirty or what happens when those mirrors are like uh, circus mirrors and they're a little warped or bent. How does my little secret surprise look to you now? How, How do you know that this reflection is an accurate representation of my surprise. If this mirror could be totally warped, but you don't have access to this. All you have access is to my warped mirror. And you think it's this, but it actually isn't. But it's the warped mirror. And then the warped mirror is heading over to another warped mirror. And then we're operating on all of this warped information, but thinking it's crystal clear reality just we all see it exactly the same way. It is what it is, bowls and books. No problem here. This is actually saying that there's like distortion upon distortion upon distortion, and it's this giant agreed upon distortion. Right? So it's like, oh, you see it like I see it, so there must be no distortion. We can't both be wrong. Yeah, we could all be wrong. I'm curious, where is the, the word, you know, like the label? Where, where is it? Because like, mm. you can be like, Okay, I smell this, I see this, but if you don't have a word for it, it like is it the sick at the sixth level? It's like So well let me finish all of this and then we'll try to get there. Which is Rupa, form, flesh, matter, shape. We'll get there. There's this idea in Buddhism called Nama Rupa. It's not, some people translate this as name and form. Two things, name and form. Bad etymology, bad scholarship. Nama Rupa is one word and it's one idea. Name form as one. And I'll share with you in (laughs) 20 minutes of how that is, and it'll answer your question about the name. But we have one more consciousness to go, which is really the kind of the foundation of the Yogacara mind-only Vijnanamata school. So, five external consciousnesses, the sixth brain, and then this emergent 
seventh consciousness that looks down upon the information being provided to it from the other five and the central processing unit. Does it have form, this, the seventh one? No. And again, I think a good, a helpful analogy is to think of a, an electric motor where you have a little light and it's powered by two magnets. And when the two magnets are over here, you don't have any light. And then you bring the two magnets closer together in the magnetic field. Oh, light. Pull the, pull the magnets apart. No more light. Light. No more light. Light. No more. That relationship is dependent origination. And the idea is, is that the seventh consciousness emerges when all of this is happening. And as soon as I, quote, die, and there's no more dynamic interplay of these five sensory organs, there's no more magnets coming together to create this seventh consciousness. And that's why the Buddhism's always like, yeah, don't get hung up on this idea of a seventh consciousness as a self, as anything that will transmigrate, get reincarnated. No, no, no. It's an emergent property, if you will. If you, this is like a modern philosophical turn of an emergent property. It's, not a, it's a property that only emerges when these two things come together, and it's not in this one or this one, but when they get together, there emerges this property. And in fact, all of this is emergent in that way, because again, no eyeball. If there's eyeballs just floating around in space, but there's nothing to see, then there's no eye consciousness. This sort of, if the tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, doesn't make a sound kind of idea, is sort of in there. If there's no contact going on between eyes and form, there's no eye visionana. It doesn't go anywhere else, it just isn't. And when there's no coming together of these, there's no sixth. And when there's no all of that, there's no mono visionana, seventh consciousness, and then there's the eighth consciousness. This is what I brought you all here tonight to talk about. The eighth consciousness. which is called the Alaya Vijnana. Otherwise known as the storehouse consciousness. So, eight o'clock, so just a few words on this to spark some questions. But the idea of the storehouse consciousness is that this vijnana is this uh, receptacle store, this receptacle consciousness or storehouse. It's what Elia means. It's like a receptacle or a storehouse. And what they describe the Elia as is a vast field in which the seeds of our karma are planted and things come to fruition out of that field. The storehouse consciousness, depending on who you talk to and what school of Buddhism, the storehouse consciousness is something like a kind of personal unconscious or a collective unconscious, depending on who you talk to. Uh, I want to I attempt to illustrate it using my diagram here. Um, let's see. So... Five, six is the brain, seventh is this emergent 
egoist mind that looks down on the sixth yeah, to the unenlightened, non-Buddha, non-Bodhisattva, the eighth consciousness is this storehouse consciousness that is the receptacle of all the karma of your life and past experiences and all of that. So it is this kind of idea of your personal collective consciousness that's kind of holding or storing all the memories of your lives, not your whole life, your whole lives, all of them together. But that's to the unenlightened, that the eighth consciousness is this kind of deep, 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 deep subconscious that is ultimately the foundation out of which all these other consciousnesses are arising, like waves on an ocean surface. But to the enlightened, the eighth consciousness is here. And what that means is, is that even the original external object that whose form was being perceived by the eye and sent to the brain and perceived by the seven consciousness, even that original external bowl is actually a dharma of the Alaya Vijnana. <laughs> I just thought of a weird analogy like from last week you were talking about how the whole universe was then folded up and put into an atom it's like the eighth consciousness is the atom mm -hmm. that's why I, that's why I say from another enlightened perspective it can only be the deepest recesses of my own subconscious from the enlightened perspective no it's the totality of everything it's that, in, yeah, it's, it, it vacillates between the infinite and the particular that way. The Alaya Vijnana is tricky. By the way, before I answer any questions on the Alaya Vijnana, I want you to know that this idea of Yogacara Buddhism is split into so many schools based on controversies and controversy and arguments about what is this? Where is it? How do I? Yeah, all these ideas. So any questions you have, I'm about to give you like 10 different answers to because... All the Buddhists don't know what this thing is and are trying to figure it out. There's no agreed upon explanation. Suzanne. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is that in the eighth consciousness, that's when it stops being a theory of a bowl. Like the actual bowl is there. Like up till then, up till the seventh, it's a, it is that distorted mirror view. It's the consciousness bringing this up that are warped or conditioned or whatever by the individual and the the way that it's heard or the way that you've put metaphorical like dirt on the mirror, etc. But in this, it contains the, not the theory of the bowl, but the bowl itself. Yes? Yes. But the real idea that I want to drive across is that the reason why this is called mind only is because what they do is, is that prior to me unleashing this idea on you, there was you and the bowl and you as a conscious being were trying to access the bowl and realizing, oh, my external organs are, are faulty. Maybe it's a bigger bowl. Maybe it's not even a bowl. All of those things, but it's still not you. It's at this moment where even that, ex, quote, external bowl is actually an idea of the Alaya Vijnana. 
An idea. Uh, an idea only. So there has never been a book. A book. <laughs> That's the, the Yogacara flip is that realization. The reason why it's called mind only is they're saying a lot of, there's a, all essays in one of those books written all about it. The reason why it's called Chitta Matra or Vijnana Matri is they're, it's, they're saying it's just mind. That's all we've got is mind, is Vijnana and Dharmas. That's all that's going on is Vijnana and Dharmas. Vijnana is like a disturbed consciousness, and dharmas are little ideas on that disturbed consciousness. And those little ideas are all fabrications. They are all built out of delusion. They're all built out of ignorance. They're all built out of nama rupa, which I do want to get to, but not just, I got one more idea. Questions though? Um, say like the bowl triggers some kind of emotion would that be in number seven, where the emotion happens, or just, or is it just unclear? I would say uh, again that each of these. So okay, but this goes crazy though. I didn't do the crazy thing though. <laughs> so unenlightened view of the Alaya Vijnana, enlightened view of the Alaya Vijnana. Not only. Does the Alaya Vijnana contain the original perceived object as an idea? It contains my eyeball as an idea. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, so even my own idea that I'm seeing this with eyeballs is an idea. It's, in fact, it's actually like how the subject-object relationship plays out is that as soon as I have a subject-object relationship, me and it, well, now i got to explain how I'm seeing it, how I'm hearing it. Oh, it must be eyeballs. must be ears. So there are ideas that come after the perceptive experience. They're not the means by which I'm having the perceptive experience. <laughs> Crazy, right? It goes the other way. We think that I'm, we're seeing things. We're having an, an experience that's being interpreted as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. There are a few things real quick that I can't leave a class on Yogacara Buddhism without talking about. My man, I didn't get to talk about it at all, my monk, Xuanzang, he uses this beautiful analogy of a thread, and he describes this thread as... Um, I didn't, do, I didn't do the full talk on Vijnana, but most of you know that the root of this word Vijnana is Jnana, knowledge, and the pre prefix Vij, Vijnana. Vij means to cut, division, the, word, the, the root of Vij and division. Vij means to cut, comes from the Sanskrit. And so this is a knowledge or a jnana that's been vijd, vijd up. And the vij is the vij of, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm smelling. I'm dividing my experience up into hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And if you want an example of this, again, I've used this many times, think of a dream. A dream is a monolithic experience 
that you are not using your ears to hear anything, yet you have conversations with people. You're not using your eyeballs to see because they're closed. You're using your mind to see. You're not using your tongue to taste or your nose to smell. You're using your mind. So there's a way in which we all, all the time, have an experience of mind only, where we have this dream. We're seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, but not with our eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or anything. So it's a monolithic experience of consciousness without sensory organs. This is saying the same thing's happening right now, but as unenlightened beings, we don't acknowledge that. And so, bam, eyeballs, ears. That's how this is happening, right? So that's one thing. Oh, and my monk, Xuanzang, he had a beautiful analogy of what I just described, which is that that thread or that string is nyana, knowledge. And you can imagine that string being tied into six knots, right? And then I hold up the string to you and I ask, how many? Six? Really? Seven. One. One, right? One string tied into six knots. And then those knots are perceived as six individual things when it's really just fluid Nyana. The idea is, is that this is just what you're experiencing, I'm experiencing, this is fluid nyana tied into six knots of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So it's, and those knots are what create the vij, the, the vijnana. And they're, the practice of Yogacara is to basically either undo those knots or to ultimately realize those knots are empty like all other things and that consciousness is not happening through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, or even mind. One other thing that I, oh, please. <laughs> There's just one other idea. So consciousness is not happening through any of those things. Consciousness is just, it just is. It kind of, it just is. And like, there is no reality. Everything is just ideas. Mm, no, no. That's a great segue to my final point. So, uh, I lied. I have two things to say. So <laughs> the first thing you need to know about is that the Yogacara school, and even in the Sandinyarmochana Sutra, in the sutra itself, it talks about this whole thing as being the third turning of the Dharma Chakra, the third turning of the wheel of the law. This is a Buddhist notion, an idea that throughout the Buddhist world, and the idea is, is that when the Buddha first stepped on the scene, the world wasn't ready for the underlying meaning. It wasn't ready for the real mind-only teaching, and so the Buddha taught Four Noble Truths, Source of Suffering, Meditation. That was the first turning of the wheel that people were ready for. Sit down, calm down, and you'll feel better. So that's the first turn. Then the second turning of the wheel of the law is the so-called emptiness school. When the Buddha was like, okay, you guys ready? Ready? Guess what? Everything's empty. Nothing has an essential being or self. Ha -ha. So there's this emptiness that happens, and that's the second turning. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. This is called so-called the third turning of the wheel. So not just impermanence of the original school and not empty, but this third turning. And that's what I, we have 15 minutes to describe. So that third turning relates to this idea of the three natures 
of reality. And this is a fundamental Yogacara idea. What they talk about is that all phenomena, let's go back to our bowl, all phenomena have three natures or three aspects to them, three natures. They, they use the word nature, I'll use nature. One nature or reality of this bowl is the so-called kind of conventional reality of this bowl, which is all of the lakshana or characteristics that I am throwing onto this object and then getting this back as a bowl. Round, hollow, this, that, sounds good. All of these lakshana are being thrown onto said object. And through all of this, you kind of should know now that that's a big mess. It's a big mess, right? So the conventional is considered the deluded, ignorant view of reality where it's just all of our desires, prejudices, discriminations being thrown onto the objects of reality. And then we're just looking at our prejudices, our discriminations, and all of that, and being like, oh, look. So that's the unenlightened view, that first view. The second nature of all things is the dependently originated nature, and therefore empty. That because all things depend on all other things to be what they are, any one thing in and of itself doesn't have that nature, right? I've used the chair as an example many a times that if we were anatomically designed differently to where my legs didn't bend this way, this would cease to be a chair. Chairs would need to go the other way, right? And so there's a way in which this as a chair is dependently originated on the way I move. So the dependent nature of this is that it's not really a chair unto itself. It is, could be function as a chair, Dependently based on all these other things around it. So there's the delusion. If you pull back all the delusion, you can get to the empty nature of things, the dependently originated nature of things. So that's the second nature. And then the third nature of things is what is called tapata. And so what tathata is, which is interesting, and again, it's what makes the Yogacara Buddhism Yogacara Buddhism and not other kinds of Buddhism, is it says, okay, so we're projecting all of this use value and value value and all aesthetic value, all these values, all these ideas under this thing. That's the first nature, great. I can strip all those away, and I can see, oh, it's a dependently originated idea based on other dependently originated ideas, and therefore it unto itself is empty. Great. But there's still this thing. <laughs> I know it's empty. I know, but there's still this experience of this. So the idea of tapata or suchness is this third nature of reality where you sort of, in the second turning of the wheel, everything is empty and pulled out. And this third turning of the wheel is this sort of return to the world. And the only, I mean, it's, oh, it's so late for a tapata talk, but <laughs> the idea of suchness is this, is that if I'm totally deluded and just throwing my, my stuff onto reality and getting that back, 
that's going to be a problem. So again, great, I do the Buddhist practice and I stop projecting and I just can kind of, quote, see things as they really are. Great. Well, if I were to see things as they really are, I would see that they're dependently originated and therefore empty. But then I would still be here in this world, seeing everything I'm seeing, but understanding that it's empty, understanding that its nature is not a whole. I understand that its nature is dependently originated based on all these other things, based on past experiences, based on all this other stuff. But there's still this. So Takata is this sort of, um, put it a different way. Just going to totally put it a whole other way. So a lot of religious traditions out there will tell you that there is a truer, a more true reality under this, that our eyes has, uh, have scales on them or whatever the analogy is, and that there's a more true reality under this reality. And if we could peel back the scales or the delusion from our eyes, we would see it, right? This is other, this is not Buddhism. This is like a lot of religious traditions that are claiming there's a reality under this reality. And if we could pull back the veils from our eyes, we would see it. Buddhism does not say that. It's not saying that there's a reality under this. What it's actually saying is, is that there is always only just this. There is no, there's nothing more true than this, than what you're experiencing right now. There's nothing more true than this. It's actually, I often describe it as, this is a perfect reflection of your karma, to see it this way. There is actually no other way for you to see it. And if you started meditating and cleared your mind up and started to see it different, well, then you'd be seeing it that way and not this way. Did everybody see what I just said there? It's not that that's more true. It would just be a truer reflection of where you are at mentally. Everybody see what I'm saying? That, rea that realization that this is a perfect reflection of my karmic state, that's ta-ta-ta. This is that third turning when you come back to the very world you're experiencing, but you now realize, oh, I'm throwing all this stuff on it. Boom. And it's dependently originated. Boom. But this is... The experience. And there's nothing else to have have but this. One, one metaphor I've used for this is, is imagine that there, I have this really like pristine white sheet of paper. Just perfectly pristine, right? But now imagine that I have a, a, a thought or an idea or an experience. And as a representation of that thought or that idea or that experience, I'm going to take a, a, a pin and poke a hole in that white sheet of paper. Boom, that's an experience. Boom, that's a thought. Et voila, that's an idea. Et voila, that. Oh, boom, 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 boom. All these holes of ideas. Da, 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 da. You know, maybe this whole life or lifetime after lifetime. Da, 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 da. Everybody follow me? That's all my past karma. Everything I've thought. Everything I've considered. Now imagine that I have like a bright light. I got a, I, I got a big light and I blast that light of consciousness through that sheet of paper and like a puppet show on the wall, there is this display of all those holes and all that. That's what this is. This is the light of consciousness being blasted through my mind with all of its past samskaras <coughs> and all of that. And whoa, it looks like this. This is what my past karma and mind looks like. This is the perfect place to practice. Right? It's my own mind with all of my own desires and wants and knots and this and that. That's tathata. This return to this world, 
but realizing that it's suchness. It's as, as um, I translate tafata sometimes as as it isness. Just as it isness. It would, anyways. Anyways. <laughs> That's Yogacara in a nutshell, in a very tiny nutshell. Ideas about that? Is it just the white stuff paper? Is it the alaya? Yes. So, it, thank you. That would be great. So, that, in my analogy, that white sheet of paper, punched with all the holes as the storehouse, all the holes are the past karma. Yes, that's the storehouse. And the storehouse is, in a way, the foundation out of which all of this is arising because it's the grand sheet of paper with all the holes in it. I think a lot of the practice or a lot of the ideas that we explore on these Sunday nights, a lot of it comes back to a practical application of not getting too hung up on this reality. There's a certain way in which, you know, a basic Buddhist teaching or a basic Buddhist dharma is that we are all clinging too hard, not just to our stuff, and not just to our ideas, but just to our, our understanding of this world. That like we've got it all figured out, and this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And there's a way in which we all are clinging too hard to our senses of reality, our senses of things, and bowls and things like that. And so all of this is to kind of try to be a big jog of your mind to be like, oh, wow, I've been really hung up on some stuff that might not be so important or significant. There might be other things going on here that are way more important or significant than my trite little bowls and books and things like that. You know what I mean? Like, I think I know that we do, on Sunday nights, since your first Sunday night, we kind of go out there with the idea being that, or my idea as a teacher being that, for the most part, we're all a little too closed up, just thinking about whatever the latest trend is, or the latest meme, or whatever, and that there's a way in which, you know, did you hear about any of this this week? You know, I mean, this is like, or at least I'm going for like brand new information to try to really get out of that and that the, the, the practicality or the benefits is like that expansive mind that might not be too hung up on stuff, that could maybe think of new ideas. If you're an artist, be more creative, more inspired, all kinds of stuff. I think that's about, I, I know that you haven't been here for these other talks I've given, but the idea is that a, we've spent a lot of time in this class focusing on this Buddhist idea of emptiness, that of, of nothing having an inherent nature or existence in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of Buddhism, to deal with emptiness. That's like what's kind of at least one nature of things, so it's like important to, to talk about. And for at least like the like Zen Buddhism, they sort of stay right there in that emptiness. And there's people joke that there's a reason why the Zen guys wear black robes because they're all about that empty, void, black space. It's like a joke. There's a there's a, a, a joke, not a joke, but a, a story about a monk who didn't like the Zen the Zen sect. And when asked one, he pointed to a tar-covered roof. He just like pointed at this black roof, and that was his answer. And his answer was that they're too dark, they're too morbid, they're too, it's too empty. 
Um, so this tapata idea, which is a big part of this type of Buddhism we're talking about tonight, is that that emptiness school sort of pulls the rug out from reality and just vacates everything of significance and meaning, at least, you know, unto itself. And again, it leaves everything a little in the void. The beauty of tapata, it's, it's a refilling of this world in a way, if that makes sense. Like rather than this bleak spot of everything's empty, uh, it's like, oh no, everything's full of possibility, life, everything is anything. You know, or that, you know, everything is everything kind of idea. Which, again, can be a little more buoying of the spirit than everything is empty. Everything's everything? That sounds a little better than nothing. Kind of an idea. So, And the, I think the beauty of tapata, that of, of like I said, like this is my, our, my own mind or my own experience or what a great place to practice. The beauty of tapata too is you don't need to go to the mountaintop or the cave or the for- Thai forest. Your mind will be wherever you are. And so tapata, behold. So there's that to it too. Anywhere becomes a, a place of practice and any time becomes a place of practice in tapata. Kind of like that. thing that I would like to say about Tathata that I think is nice that it's probably not going to help you <laughs> now that I think about it but um, another way to think of Tathata thinking of some uh, metaphors and analogies I brought up tonight is and this sort of relates to last week's idea of this monolithic reality that I that I was talking about Tathata is like if imagine you know I had like a, a big old mirror big old mirror here and it was capturing like all of you in this big old mirror right sure out here in reality I can like there's different things and I can like move things around and prove that this is not that it's like that's that's not that look I can move it right so doing that right but then in my big mirror right and this is what I was trying to articulate last week in this big mirror, isn't the surface of this mirror just one reflection? Isn't this surface of the mirror just monolithic silver reflection? And that in you looking at it, you can be like, oh, look, there's Jenny, there's Noam. And in your mind, you can separate them and be like, look, it's two different people. But nah, it's actually just a reflection that's monolithic, dynamically reacting to what it's reflecting, but it itself is one, one, right? Tathata is seeing all of this as a mirror-like reflection that my mind is divisioning up 
into different people sitting on chairs, on rugs, on the ground, on the earth. All of these divisions, but in actuality, it is a monolithic reflection of my mind in that sense. That was a lot of hands. Vicky, you... Because, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> definitely got the, no, you got me to the limits of, of articulation, but it's really, I mean, it has a lot to do with, oh my gosh, I can't, yeah, I can't. It's a, great, it's a really great question, and I, you know, enough time, yeah, I could articulate it, but you've stumped me in, or not, yeah, again, stumped me in terms of I don't know, I can't say it, but I will, this might help, it might not, it's an image that I've shared that for some people it's like, oh, I got it, thanks, <laughs> other people not. So, if this Aliyah Vijnana is like a mirror, right, the reflection and all of that, Imagine, conceptually, don't take this literally and ask me all questions about whatever, but imagine that this Alaya mirror-like storehouse mind is not, is a mirror, but it's one of the, it's like a flexible mirror. Imagine it goes like this and is looking at itself and mistakes that it's looking at itself because it's like, who's that over there? When really it's just a bent mirror having an infinite reflection of its own self, that's what this is. Is that I, unenlightened, see, oh, look, other people. But from the mirror mind, it's actually just curves in the mirror reflecting each other. One mind or one conscious experience being sort of crimped or bent off and then seeing itself. But forgetting what it is, and so it thinks it's another person and that it's a person. Two sides of the same mirror, forgetting that they're made of mirror-like minds. No? <laughs> Good. There's something that, that happened in, in, in New York for me. I was walking down the street and I saw this thing called a true mirror, which is two mirrors at 45 degree angles. And so what that does is translate your face the way other people oh, see it. Yeah. Yeah. I stood in front of that store for an hour because <laughs> I'd never seen my face the, the way, way. people seen it. And that triggered something which still triggers it in our conversations, in the lectures of what is this true reality, or to use that expression. And so if you ever get a chance to look at a true mirror, 
Yeah, yeah. Pretty mind blowing that all of a sudden I see the way other the people, people see me rather than a reflection. Yeah, yeah. It's just exciting. It's like I'm gonna go to my sister in law's house because I bought her one, so I'm gonna go get that tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, again, just one last little uh, sort of related to it, but just a last note on this mind only thing and what it means is that, you know, this idea of, let's say, like a hallucinatory experience. Somebody hallucinates and thinks they see a pink elephant. And then you don't hallucinate and you don't see a pink elephant. And so the consensus reality idea is, is that there was no pink elephant. I was, quote, hallucinating and they were, quote, not hallucinating and seeing, quote, reality. This Yogacara mind only thing is saying, no, no, no. For me, there was a pink elephant in the room, and for them, there was not a pink elephant in the room, and that's all there is to it. It's not that there was a pink elephant or not, really or not really. It was that for them, they didn't experience the pink elephant, and I did. And that's another idea of this idea of tathata, that what you are experiencing, that's all there is to it. The ideas about what it what it might really be or whatever, those are total figments of the imagination because all you ever have is experience only. Vijnana Matri or Vijnana Vada. Oh, you got one more? Rocket. Yes. Well, actually, yes. it was maybe an answer to you just to give my own sense of how that really helped with me. Um, knowing that you won't escape, really, the fact of poking holes in this white sheet of paper, I mean, at least as, as long as you have a body and you're in this experience I feel like it, it is personally I find that very empowering to know that this process is going on and then to intentionally know where I want to poke holes and um, some are really collective constructs and so it requires more energy but then you can really decide what you want to see in your life and I feel that's super empowering personally so um, so that's what one thought. And then the second thought is like, there's an awesome TED talk. Um, how also I get into these things is about like senses and, and experience of reality, how to have different senses change the fact how you experience reality. And there's this guy, David Eagleman. He, he's doing his whole research on developing new senses for humans. And then literally you would experience reality differently. You would start to have new names, I guess, or new... Mm. Um, and that's, that's for me, like, again, the relationship between uh, what we think is reality and how this is actually really tied to our perception and our sensory organs. So, David Eagleman, TEDx, or TED Talk, pretty good. No? Um, I, I was noticing during the talk that what you said made me think that even though we're talking about five or six senses and even though... We, we, we default to a visual way of describing things, like, you know, all the pictures are pictures of gold. They're not, there's not a picture of a sound of gold, there's a picture of a picture of gold. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's just an observation. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, I was talking all night, though. And you were talking, I didn't know, I didn't know... So there was a lot of sound about, <laughs> a, a sound was, about bowls and sound, was, yeah. There was. <laughs> um, I'm, historically, I'm trying, I was trying to visualize your map from... Uh, of a Tuesday, yep. the Dhamma Bones, but the, the, I first heard about suchness uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, and he actually talks a lot about what you were saying. It, it's essentially like, think about where you're poking holes, right? Mm -hmm. But um, how, if Yogacara Buddhism influenced 
bed and bosom primarily, then how did it get to the, or how does... Oh, no, yeah, I didn't, if, then I didn't finish that thought. Yogacara is the foundation upon which Vajrayana grew out of in Tibetan Buddhism, but Yogacara is the foundation which all future Buddhism would develop. Meaning that Zen, you name it, any Buddhism after this appeared is mind only. It was like Buddhism as a whole came to this final conclusion where they were like, oh yeah, it's mind only. And then schools branch off and Zen takes that information in a certain direction. The Tibetans take that information in a certain direction, and they all go with it. And so, you, <clears throat> the reason why, I, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason why I like to teach this yoga chart, even though it's not practiced in the world, is that again, if any Buddhism you encounter, pretty much it is founded on this. They don't, they might not even know it, if you know what I mean. Like a lot of schools that are so steeped in the mind only may not teach a sangha, vasubandhu, and all that stuff. But I guarantee you that their philosophy is founded out of this, in the same way that all Mahayana Buddhism is founded out of emptiness pranya stuff and that it all is coming out of each other so yeah it's like I'm always trying in that way to contextualize modern Buddhism by sharing you the ancient or medieval stuff that way so yeah all modern Buddhism is you know, is mind only yeah only some Theravada schools are still pretty staunchly like believe in this reality that way but yeah. alright everybody thank you so much uh, thank you. Uh, next week, Zen Buddhism. I'm going to do my, my Zen talk, so if you like Zen Buddhism. <laughs>